Learning anything takes time, doesn't it? Uh, unless you're one of those annoying people who just can do anything without breaking the sweat, you know, crochet, <laughs> learn French, paint, build a fence, whatever. Oh yeah, just building a fence, painting, cooking. Ugh. Learning takes effort. This was brought home to me last weekend when, as a family, we went out for a trip. Um, if we were in the traffic centre doing a few chores, and the treat was tea at Wagamama's. Now, this is a fave for the Horlocks, partly because we love stuff, anything to do with Japan. So Emily lived in Japan for a time, serving out there before she went to university. Sam and Noah love Japanese culture, they love anime, they love food and all of this, so Wagamama's is right in that sweet spot for us as a treat. So just as we pick up our chopsticks, ready to dive into our ramen, Noah, without hesitation, just gives this one word of thanks. And Sam joins in, says it back, and Emily says it as well. And I'm left there going, wait, what, what, what's just happened? This one word of thanks in Japanese. I'm just like, wait, wait a second, I was feeling well and truly left out and buried behind, you know? Like, wait, wait a second, no, what, what did she just say? Uh, what was that word? You learnt it how, watching anime? Uh, it means to humbly receive. Wow, so, so how do you say it? Several attempts later, one short YouTube clip, and lots of teenager eye rolling, like, oh, Dad, you're so embarrassed to believe it. I still couldn't say it. <laughs> I have been truly schooled by my kids. I couldn't say this lovely, powerful Japanese word. I couldn't get the pronunciation. And if you're wondering what it is, you have to Google it. <laughs> or have a chat with Tim and Mina Walker. They will be able to tell you. But learning anything, especially a language, isn't it? It slows us down. It, it shows us up in some ways. It shows our ignorance. It's, it makes us feel vulnerable. And especially as we get older, we, we get less open to learning. I wonder whether that's just a pride thing. You know, I, I know everything, and if I don't know something, what's the point in knowing it at this stage? You know, but learning stuff slows us down, it makes us vulnerable. And as Christians, you know what? We are on a lifelong journey of learning. And being schooled by Jesus our King. We're learning not just the language, but the lifestyle of his kingdom. And this Bible passage before us in Mark 9 challenges our hearts, as it did the 12 disciples, as it did Mark's original listeners in Rome. It challenges us. Are we prepared to learn from Jesus? Are we seriously going to follow him? Are we going to learn? Are we going to take on his priorities? Are we prepared to be re-educated and changed, leaving behind our little kingdoms for his eternal kingdom? And it will be a struggle. It will be painful. Look at the disciples. What's just gone on? Jesus reveals something more of his mission. And you see it there in verse 30 as they're passing through Galilee. He tells them again, this is the second time, he announces his mission as God's king. And he adds a little bit more detail. This time he tells them he's going to be delivered into the hands of man in verse 31. And that's talking about betrayal. 
In Mark 8, he said he's going to be the king who's going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. Now he adds this bit about being betrayed, delivered. And the disciples are still confused. What is this rising? It's just, this doesn't make sense. If you're a king, then rise to power. Yeah, but what's this suffering stuff? You, you can see they're struggling to get to grips with it, and they're afraid. They, they don't want to ask any more questions about this. Now, just as a bit of a sidebar, it's intriguing that in the life accounts we have of Jesus, written here by his first-hand followers and recorded uh, for people scattered across Europe in the first century and preserved for us today, isn't it interesting that in an account like this, Peter, who is the source of this, marks his scribe, is showing the disciples lack of understanding, looking, making them look a bit thick, you know? That we still don't get this. It's just a sidebar, it's just a note. It really encourages me. Here we're reading a text where if I was writing it, I'd puff myself up. I got it straight away. <laughs> Everyone else was good. No. These guys are being authentic. This is reliable. You can trust it. But notice how patient the teacher Jesus is. He's not going to leave them in the dark. In fact, he's going to challenge them further, and it's going to get uncomfortable as again he just slows everything down. He sits down the top. Now, when that happens, you know you're in for one because that's what a rabbi does when they're going to explain and teach and take deeper into truth. What happens in the Sermon of the Mount? Jesus sits and everyone listens. And this wasn't a cozy fireside chat or a slick TED talk or a technical lecture. No, it's a life-changing lesson with eternal consequences. He's schooling them and us in serious discipleship. So have a look at verses 33 to 35. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last of the servant of all. What was the issue that caused the argument? Shout out. Greatness. Greatness. What an argument. Nothing changes, does it? From the playground to the boardroom, from the nursery to the staff room, who gets to be captain? Who calls the shots? Who makes the final decision? Who's in charge? Who's first? And here the disciples are arguing. They've moved on from let's dealing with what does it mean for him to be raised. Let's just go straight forward. Who's the greatest? Here are the disciples wrestling together, arguing about who's going to get the top place in Jesus' kingdom. Greatness. What an idol. What a powerful drug captures cultures all over the world. Political elections are won by promising it. Heck, we British even decided to stick it in our name. But where's greatness to be found? Is it a matter of power or popularity or the best performance or position or possessions? The pursuit of greatness can destroy many, can't it? 
And in so many ways, we're no different to the disciples. We want to be in the in crowd. Three went up the mountain, we told, in the previous chapter, earlier in chapter 9. They went up the mountain with Jesus. And they had this awesome experience of seeing him in glory with Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John. And then Jesus tells them not to share what's gone up the mountain, yeah? They come down, just keep it to yourselves at the moment. You can tell each other, tell the others when the time you are. Now, I would have been the guy who's down at the bottom of the mountain, the base camp, going, why am I so special? Huh? When they come down, what, what, what did you see? Come on, tell us something. Um, later, Pete, later. What, what do you mean, later? Why, aren't, aren't we in? Yeah? Just like? Perhaps. Even in the way we do things when it comes to serving at church, there are times perhaps we could be doing it in a way to be a bit of a people pleaser, to catch the, the attention of others around us, to be noticed. And you know what? This is why I find those verses in verse, those words in verse 35, they remain so stinging. Just look at them again. Anyone who wants to be first. Literally in the Greek, that's the prototype, the primary, must be the very last and the servant of all. But the disciples growing inwardly, aren't they? Jesus is saying his king, in his kingdom, greatness equals service. Any follower of his is called to be a servant of all, meaning any person. There's no exclusions, gender. Race, status, background, education, economics, disability, intelligence, no exclusion. Greatness equals service. And in fact, I think this whole section from chapter 9, verse 30, right through to chapter 10, 45, is linked by this theme of servanthood. And you have Jesus climatically saying what his mission is in 10.45. The Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's make it utterly clear. Jesus also is the ultimate servant for humanity. He alone is the one giving his life, dying on a cross. As Richard Coken, a pastor in South London, put it, not as a suicide, but as a sacrifice. He's there on a mission to save us from hell and to call all of Jesus' followers, the call of Jesus' followers throughout history and into the future will always be, be a servant. And you know what? That is only possible because he first served us. Well, what does that look like? And this is where the passage, I think, hangs together. Because if that is the issue that Jesus is teaching on, being a servant, well, how does that play out? How do we apply that? And I think that's what we see in verses 36 to 50. So we see it in being a servant means being a servant to everyone by generously welcoming them. And we're going to look at that in terms of status and then in terms of the work others are doing. And then being a servant of everyone, and here's the painful bit, means we're serious about killing for the sake of others and for ourselves. So let's have a look at generously welcoming others. 
What does that look like? Jesus uses a stunning visual aid here, doesn't he, to drive home his point about being first? Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say that greatness has no place in his kingdom. Did you notice he didn't go there? Then you see, there is a hierarchy in the kingdom of God. There is a first and a last. There is rank and priority. There is great and greater. But the measure of greatness is radically different from what we experience here and now. In Jesus' kingdom, it's perfectly just. It's perfectly right. Everyone will rejoice in it. There will be no complaining. There will be no left outness. Have a look at verses 36 and 37. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now just take some time to let that image grow in your mind's eye. Picture it. It is so powerful on so many levels. Think, the disciples, these grown-ups are huddled together around Jesus, trying to hide their preoccupation with being number one and who's the boss. But imagine, they've, they've finished eating, and the family are around clearing the, the, the food away. And imagine, they're, they're children, probably Peter's nephews or even his own children, they're in Capernaum, they're in Peter's house. And Andrews, and, and they're, they're away in the corner of the room doing that kid thing. You know, if we're quiet playing and they don't notice us, we get to stay up a bit longer. You know, they're doing that. Oh, don't make a noise, Dad doesn't want to send us to bed yet. And then unexpectedly, Uncle Yeshua comes over and brings them right into the heart of the grown ups. Oh no, they've seen us, he's going to tell us to go to and brush our teeth. And Uncle Yeshua then just gives you the biggest hug. And you feel completely safe. You feel completely loved. You know, literally, the Greek there is folding into the arms. It's not a, there we go. It's a proper in the arms. You go around and you don't want to. And then he tells all the grown-ups that they need to do the same. Because when you welcome children like this, you're welcoming Jesus and his Father. Now, at that point, I'm sure the disciples are even more confused. What, you want us to go around hugging children? <laughs> well, what is going on? And Tim Keller, pastor in New York, um, who has written some fantastic books and has written a study guide that explains it so clearly in his study notes. And I just want to share what he uh, brings out here. You see, to welcome a child is to take a weak, dependent person into your care. Since children have extensive needs, don't they? They, they give very little in return as well. Even if you get that lovely moment where they look at you and smile and say thank you, you know, two minutes later you're into a totally different <laughs> game, you know, that, that's flown past. But 
They can't do anything practically in terms of the world and economics and status and stuff. Children lack status. They often were sold by their parents in the first century like property. Even infants were thrown out to die if they were not the desired gender. That was common. Children can't do you any favours. They don't have influence or money or status. So to honour, respect and receive a child was to honour and respect and receive anyone considered with little status. People who would have been maybe seen as below culturally, socially, economically, educationally. I don't know um, whether you've watched the BBC drama The Interrata, which is on at the moment, but it's captured superbly in episode three with a moving scene where the main character, Jean Valjean, after many years, finds uh, a little girl called Cosette, the daughter of a woman who used to work for him. And he meets her trying to fill a bucket of water. She's probably, I don't know how old she is in Victor Hugo's book, but she, at this time she's probably about six or seven or something. And she's trying to fill these heavy buckets with water. It's snowy. She's been made to go out by the pub landlords who have had her in their so-called care. But uh, Jean Valjean comes across her and says, uh, you don't need to carry water today. And he fills up the buckets, and then he carries them all the way back uh, to the pub. And when he finds the landlord and the wife who have been in charge of Cosette, and they've been abusively keeping her as a slave, essentially, Jean Valjean not only buys her a doll to play with and pays for her time not to work, but he then defends her when she's bullied physically by the landlord's wife in front of other people. And he then redeems her. He pays an incredible sum of money to release her from this couple and bring her up as his own daughter. Now, it's a very moving scene. And what Victor Hugo, the author, probably wants us to figure out is that Jean Valjean's action is actually shaped by the profound mercy and grace he experienced from a bishop years ago who welcomed him into his home when he was destitute, he was a freed prisoner with no status, no hope, no hope. And this action was another ripple effect of that mercy and grace. And interestingly, that word for receive, welcome, that Jesus used, is the equivalent of a banquet or a feast for a diplomat. It's not just a handshake and a wander off. The word has something of expense and real going out to bring someone in. But it's interesting that the example Jesus said gives is just even a glass of water later, even a small act of common hospitality is much in my kingdom. I actually shared these verses the other day with a businessman who has spent the majority of his life in investment banking, very successful really lovely guy as well. He's now working in the third sector and helping charities and stuff like this. Um, church upbringing, but wouldn't identify as a Christian. We were talking about leadership and stuff like this. And I showed him these verses. We were talking about service and purpose. And I read him this simple statement, verse 35. And then what Jesus did next with the child. And he was really quiet. 
just in that very thoughtful way process. And then just said one word. Wow. And then asked where he could find it again to look at it later. You see, the way Jesus' kingdom operates means the greatest person is the one who seeks most to serve little people. Those who can't give you anything back. But why is that? Because Jesus first does this to us. He welcomes us when we were ungrateful, helpless, foolishly arrogant, stubbornly self-centered, living in the echo chamber of our little kingdom, thinking we were the centre of the universe, when we were spiritually poor and in need. Jesus, the mighty creator of all, becomes little, a man living on earth to meet us, the little people to bring us in our weakness, and through the weakness and suffering of his cross into his glorious family. That's how this kingdom operates. And if we don't get this, we will never understand service. We'll never understand Jesus' reason for service. We'll always feel entitled to live as the king. We'll always feel entitled to live as the king and not as the servant. We'll view other people as tools to serve my needs and my plan. And you know what, practically in church, what does that mean? It means we need to guard ourselves against the danger of honouring those the world thinks is powerful, the world thinks is wise and successful. There's a danger of Christian celebrity, perhaps, and Christian celebrity culture, where we think that our faith, Christianity, is validated because of the popularity and caliber of certain followers. But as soon as you have pedestal Christians in a pop culture, whether it's sport or business or politics or pastors, we're setting them up for a fall, aren't we? Whether it's Justin Bieber, Michelle Obama, Stormzy, Mary Berry, Sophie Vardy, Bill Hybels, and this could go on in all different ways. Whatever scale or reach, as soon as they're up there, there's only one way down, isn't there? At GCM, we need to keep asking God to make us a church that welcomes and generally, generously receives the lonely, the needy, especially those who are Christian, who bear Jesus' name, who are forgotten, who cannot repay us, who don't bring secular credibility or don't bring pots of money into church. And when we engage in social action, we must do it not as a badge of honour, winning approval ratings, something to put on the website, but as an overflow, quietly of gratitude for the welcome Jesus has shown us. This is something we do as a community, it's something we do individually. And we serve generously when we celebrate the work of others. And this is the next thing that comes up. Have a look at verses 38 to 41. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. It was John who spoke up, 
And it's interesting that John, Peter, and James, all in different ways, three times after Jesus tells a bit more of his mission, come out with a question or a statement which shows they don't understand stuff. And John seems stuck on this unknown exorcist who wasn't following them, he wasn't part of their crowd, he wasn't in the crew. And it's as if John and the Twelve want power in Jesus' name to be their thing, can't be others. Added to the fact, perhaps they felt a little bit ashamed that this guy was doing precisely the thing they couldn't do just a few verses earlier, driving out a demon, as Mike showed us last week. This unknown guy was obviously doing gospel work. He was obviously someone who prayed, because that's what Jesus said you need to be doing in Mark 9 earlier. And he, he was obviously doing it dependent on Jesus' power. It wasn't his power. And can you understand how radical Jesus' acceptance at that point, Jesus' approval of this unknown Joe Brooks, is. This is powerful stuff. You see, you don't get into Jesus' family by hanging out with the right people, or passing an entrance exam, or having a CV demonstrating you've been to all the right conferences, or the uh, church attendance is over 97%, or whatever it is. No way, Jesus welcomes him because this guy is a little one. He is like the child. He's dependent on Jesus. He's doing Jesus' work. Get on with it. It's an important reminder to us that Jesus' kingdom is far bigger than who we know and what we can see. Especially in a human church that is deeply divided by denominations, where there are numerous ministries and theological opinions and pressure groups with agendas. And one of the things I love about Grace Church is its generosity to celebrate the gospel work that's going on all over the city and all over the world. That there are Christians and people working that we can say amen to and support. It's something Mike and the elders actively demonstrate. And so personally, are you praying for and encouraging other Christians rather than jumping way too quickly to criticise and pull apart their ministries that they're involved with. Yes, we need to be discerning and hold to biblical truth, but we also need to understand that correction and calling out sin starts with us. It starts here. It's not about pointing the finger out there to some faceless enemy or some faceless heretic. It starts here. So be wise about how you use social media. What, what online discussions and stuff do you post on Facebook and on Twitter? Those little rants. What are you doing? Be humble in the way we talk about the work that Grace Church is involved with. We don't have all the answers. We're a work in progress. We need to learn from other churches and from other Christians. We need to celebrate their work. I just want to share um, a story that Don Cormack, who was a missionary of OMF, working in Cambodia in the 1970s and earlier, and it was the time that the brutal Khmer Rouge regime instigated a horrific genocide uh, of Cambodian people, between 101.6 million, 1.8 million killed. And this account tells the moving story of Chen, a Cambodian teenager that Don met, illustrating the power of Christians working in Jesus' name. There are a number of other Cambodian Christians who, mostly because 
they had family still in Cambodia, did not join the stampede west, but returned home. One willing returning, however, stood out beyond all the others. It was a young lad named Chen. Chen was 14 years old. He'd been brought from the border of KOI Don Dan Cam Hospital because he was terminally ill with stomach cancer. With him was his elder brother Chen, who was 16. Both were country lads and came from a small village about 40 kilometers inside Cambodia. They'd become Christians and most days I used to sit with Chen in the hospital. We'd read Bible stories together and discuss their meaning. One day he took me completely off guard when he said, Uncle, in my village back in Cambodia, no one has ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to go and tell them. Not very convincingly, I tried to explain that the country was close to fatherless, it was illegal, and the mission I worked with would never allow it. He was puzzled at these human constraints that should stand in the way of proclaiming the message of salvation to those who desperately needed it. I suggested we pray that God would send a Cambodian Christian to the village. There were in Keo Haigang at that time several thousand Christians. But I knew from experience they tended to become very upset at the suggestion God might have brought them to this place so that they could hear the gospel, become disciples, in order that they might go back to Cambodia rather than all go off to California. There were a number of good evangelists and teachers, but none of these returned. Chen, however, was determined that his home village should hear the gospel. A few days later, he greeted me with his usual sunny smile and proceeded to explain that if no one else would go, and no one else was able to go, he would go himself. You're so weak and thin, I reminded him. You need to remain here that you can be careful properly. Nothing would alter his mind. Chen has agreed to come with me and help me, so his mind was made up. The doctors had operated on Chen some weeks earlier, but it was too late. They'd given him about three months to live. Armed with traps and gospel portions, he returned with Chen to the border and then set back off to his village. Not only did Chen have advanced cancer, but the way was fraught with dangers. Mines, bandits, Khmer Rouge gorillas, and all the privations of a, a war-torn post-killing force Cambodia. He was probably about the most weakest, foolish, lowly, despised Christian to be found anywhere in that refugee camp. One can hardly imagine the amazement of those Cambodian villagers when this pathetic-looking lad Leaning on two crutches, stood before them holding out gospel tracts. Most of them would have given all they had to have been in the place he had just come from. A secure refugee complete with food and medicine, and an American sponsorship. What important message was this that had compelled him to return so willingly to them? Chen later explained how some in the village received him gladly while others were disdaining him. But only eternity will disclose the consequences of Chen's unique mission. You see, he's, he's like the unknown exorcist in some ways. He wasn't a trained missionary. He hadn't gone to the right Bible colleges. Didn't do his New Testament Greek. He wasn't in a worship band. Hadn't done youth ministry. He just loved Jesus. Let's not stop thanking God for people like that. 
isn't it, here, that Chen, who was rejected and received, those who received Chen, what does Jesus say? They received me. They received the Father. And you see, that was always Jesus' plan, to have thousands and millions upon billions of allies all around his world, all throughout history, building his kingdom, not our club. So be excited about that commission. Be excited about the fact that those verses apply to where he has put you right now. This time tomorrow, you are definitely serving Jesus' kingdom. So are you pushing for God's glory or your own? Where will you be? Who's around you at this time tomorrow? 11.47. Whose kingdom are you pushing? Do you know you've been sent by Jesus? And that's why his attention moves to this issue of sin. And I appreciate time has rattled on, and I'm going to wind up. There's more to be said on this, and you're more than welcome to come and talk to me about it. But if we just put up this next point, that as servants, we seriously need to kill sin for the sake of others and ourselves. Jesus goes to look at the inward heart condition we have, and it is painful news, but it's deeply convicting. And yet he does it as a king who loves us. You see, every day we're making moral choices about relationships, how we spend our time and money. The world is ruled, you see, by a holy God, and therefore we're held to account for the choices we make. So verse 42, those painful, stinging words have a huge responsibility for us towards other believers. So are we causing people to stumble, to turn away, to fall from Jesus? Does our anger, our selfishness, our gossip, our arrogance, our bitterness tend someone to do evil or to mock God's holiness? What's the nature of your influence around the lives of the people God has put you around? As a parent, a friend, a colleague, a sister, brother? Are you someone encouraging people to pursue Jesus. You see, Jesus is fiercely protective of his family. That millstone around the neck here is a graphic picture, isn't it? And that was used by the Romans to, to, as a punishment against those who were causing insurrection, who were rebelling against the Roman Empire. And as we come to think about that distinctiveness, you know, we, we need to take seriously the way it's just harbored in our hearts. And yet, this is why Jesus gives these loving words, because he is a saviour who saved us from the consequences of it. Hell is real. I can't take that away. I'm not going to say it doesn't exist as some Christians do today. In fact, if I take away hell, which is a reality, of facing God's perfect and measured anger at my rebellion against him without any protection. If I take that away, it actually makes his love worthless. It makes what Jesus does on the cross just a painful death for three hours, even the criminals next to him lasted longer. There was something more going on there. 
He was rescuing us from utter separation from God. Tim Keller puts it, hell is a fact and the fire is a metaphor. These verses should stink. You see, at this point, there is no funny illustration. There's no little anecdote to make it feel better. The only thing that makes hell not an option is a loving Saviour in Jesus. And to, be, to be a servant of him is to know this counts. It's to shape our lives according to it. As I said, I'd love to chat further about those verses if you want to come and talk to me about it, or we can meet up at another point. I know Jez will be arranging a Christianity Explored course in a few weeks' time, and that is a great opportunity to look into Mark's Gospel and to look at this issue of judgment and hell. Perhaps there's something along that holiness that you're wrestling with. I'd encourage you to get a copy of Jerry Bridges' Respectable Sins. This is both a great book and a very painful one. They ended up throwing it across the bed at one point after two chapters, I was so challenged. Just to give you a taster of Jerry's uh, pastoral medicine. A lot of that of selfishness is exhibited in the home among family members. Outside the home, we are apt to be on our best behaviour and act as we know we should. But in the home, we tend to put aside those artificial restraints that are not part of our true character. And since selfishness is so difficult to see in ourselves, it would be good to ask other family members to point out any tendencies towards selfishness they see in us. And we should do this without becoming defensive or retaliating by bringing up selfishness in the other person. And then we should genuinely repent of the various sins of selfishness and begin to pray that the Holy Spirit will enable us to deal with those selfish traits. Thank you, Jerry. That's spot on. But... <laughs> You know, and I'm not giving it to you to say, go away, do your homework, and you will be home. You do it from a point of grace. This is the whole point. We have a loving Savior. Let's take it seriously. Because it's his kingdom we're building, not our own. In those verses, as it finishes, 49 to 50, there's a whole sermon just on those two. But, I think there, the sorted with fire, is looking at how we will be distinctive. That sorted with fire is an Old Testament sacrifice language. And the sortedness that Christians will experience is that of persecution and trial. This makes sense of what Peter says in his letter. You're going to suffer, you're suffering for doing good, so endure it. It will sting, it will hurt, but God is building something glorious and great. So, as followers, are you ready to be schooled by Jesus? Are you ready for how he's going to teach and change you in the next few hours, in the week ahead, for the lifetime of building his kingdom? So that he, as he already has, in the fold of his arms, loves you and won't let you go. Amen.